consider. He gives us words like word, life, light, son. And he even uses the word God to describe Jesus himself. But John also made it clear that Jesus is eternal. He existed before creation. John also claims that this Jesus is fully God and yet becomes fully human in the incarnation. And finally, John tells us that Jesus is the perfect representative of God the Father. And while John doesn't hide the fact that many will and still do reject Jesus, John also indicates that not everyone will reject Jesus. We read at verses 12 and 13 of John chapter 1 last week. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If John 1, 1 through 18 gives us a starting point when it comes to Jesus's identity, I want to do something a little bit different in John chapter 3. But this morning, I want us to think more about those two verses that we just read, John 1, 12, and 13. Because the question I want to discuss this morning is what exactly does it mean to be a child of God? Because if you ask that question of 100 random people on the street, you'd probably get 100 different answers. But what exactly sets someone who receives and believes in Jesus? What sets them apart from everyone else around them? What's the difference between one who's been given the right to become a child of God in chapter 1 and one who hasn't? John chapter 3 gives us more information to help us answer that question. So open your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading, let's pray together, and then we'll get into John 3 this morning. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the privilege that we have of opening your word. Thank you that Brothers and sisters in Christ, in spite of our differences, uh, in spite of the division in the world around us, that we can gather here together and that we can sing your praises, that we can hear from your word, that we can pray to you with one voice and one spirit. And I pray that you would help us to be of one mind, uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Um, I pray that you would help us to be united in our worship, be united in our love for you and our love for each other and our love for your word, and our love for our neighbors. Father, I pray that what we say here this morning, what we do here this morning, would be honoring to you. And Father, thank you that we can gather here not just as brothers and sisters, not just as friends, not just as fellow servants, not just as acquaintances, but that we can gather here confident that because of what Christ has done for us, we are your children. And I pray that would never, ever, ever lose the sense of awe that it gives us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ's body and blood on the cross. And we thank you for his resurrection. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, before we do any reading in chapter 3, let's bridge a few gaps from where we left off last week, specifically a couple of gaps in chapter 2. We read about how Jesus turned water into wine at Cana, and according to John chapter 2, verse 12, this led to his disciples believing in him. 
And after that event occurs, Jesus goes to the temple at Passover and rebukes the religious leaders in John chapter 2. Jesus is furious that under their leadership, the temple has become trivialized and corrupted, no better than a village market. But if you know your Bible well, you might be thinking, hold on a minute. Remember how we discussed the various differences between the other three Gospels and the Gospel of John? Well, here's one of the biggest examples. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus overturns tables in the temple one time, and it's near the very end of his ministry. But in John, this appears to happen at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. What gives? How do we reconcile these things? Well, it could be that Jesus did this twice, and John just chose to record the first occurrence instead of the second occurrence. It could be that John was less concerned about chronological sequence and intentionally moved this ahead in the story to get a specific point across. The truth is, we just don't know. But let's not miss the forest because we're looking at one tree. Let's not get too worked up about that seemingly difference. Instead, look at the exchange that happens between Jesus and the religious leaders when this event occurs. We see that in John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. So the Jews said to Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus makes this prediction about his own death and his own resurrection, and he uses the temple as a symbol for his body. But the thing I really want you to pay attention to is in verse 22. Because what we see there is that even Jesus' hand-picked disciples didn't fully understand what they were seeing and hearing until much later in the story. In all four Gospels, even Jesus' closest disciples are inconsistent at best when it comes to their faith in who he is and their understanding of what he's doing. It's only after the cross, only after the empty tomb, only after the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that everything begins to make sense for Jesus' disciples. We'll come back to that in a few moments. But then finally, look at John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So many people believe in Jesus after seeing him at the temple, just like his disciples believed in him after he turned water into wine at Cana. Yet in Jesus's response to these so-called believers, we see something important. Jesus understands that just because someone is amazed by his miracles, like at Cana, or respects his teachings, 
like in the temple. That doesn't mean they're truly a disciple yet. He doesn't entrust himself to these people quite yet. And there's that somewhat vague, kind of cryptic, and maybe even haunting phrase that John records. That Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. That sounds like a less than optimistic description of these people. It doesn't quite sound like Jesus views them as children of God, at least not yet. But what exactly does that mean? What does Jesus see in man that causes him to not entrust himself to them? If only we had a more concrete example to work with, then maybe we would know for sure. But that's where chapter 3 comes in. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A man of the Pharisees approaches Jesus named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is part of the group of religious leaders who are often confused, frustrated, and maybe even threatened by Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. But Nicodemus hasn't quite written Jesus off just yet. In fact, he can't help but be a little bit curious about who Jesus is. Nicodemus does acknowledge that Jesus is a teacher from come from God. After all, the miracles that Jesus does kind of speak for themselves, right? And Nicodemus respects Jesus, and to the chagrin of many of his fellow Pharisees, maybe even kind of likes Jesus. But is respecting him and liking him enough? Will Jesus entrust himself to someone like Nicodemus? Is liking and respecting Jesus enough to make Nicodemus a child of God? Well, apparently not. Because Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. He thinks it's illogical and, to be honest, kind of awkward to suggest that someone enter their mother's womb a second time. And on top of that, we're talking about a Pharisee here, a man with an excellent religious pedigree. Isn't he, by virtue of his Jewish heritage... Already part of God's people? Add that to the fact that he respects Jesus, he likes Jesus, which can't be said for most of the other Pharisees. You'd think that out of everybody out there, if there's one person close to entering God's kingdom, it's Nicodemus, right? Well, Jesus continues in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus makes it very clear that even Nicodemus with all of his qualifications, 
with his impressive titles, with his wonderful pedigree, even Nicodemus must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Being born of the flesh, it's not enough. Being born into the right family, not enough. Trying really, really hard to be holy and faithful as best as you can, not enough either. Respecting Jesus and liking Jesus, nope. To enter the kingdom of God, to be given the right to become a child of God, Jesus says you must be born again. As we read in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but born of God. Now again, this still sounds bizarre. I mean, how does this new kind of birth even occur? Where do you even start with something like this? Well, Jesus says this new birth that makes you a child of God, that helps you see the kingdom of God. It's not driven by you. It's not driven by some other person. It's driven by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to wind. You can't control the wind. You can't always see the wind. But you know when it's been there. I mean, think about it. You know when it's been windy outside. Trash cans are knocked over, tree branches lie on the ground, you might even be missing a few shingles from your roof. Well, in the same way, it's undeniable when a person who has been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit comes into the picture. It's one thing to be born of the flesh, one thing to be born of blood, one thing to be born of the will of man, but it is a completely new thing. To be born of the Holy Spirit. And when you see it, like when wind has blown through, the evidence is undeniable. Closing out the conversation in verse 9. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So as Jesus keeps going, he insists that. All people, even a religious leader like Nicodemus, especially, he says that Nicodemus ought to understand this. After all, it's in the Old Testament that the Pharisees profess to know so well. An important passage to consider is Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. We see this big promise that God gives his people, this wonderful future he has in store for them, this new covenant, this new life. And look how Ezekiel describes it. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. 
and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I shall be your God. Again, this whole idea of being born again, it shouldn't be anything new to Nicodemus. Guys like Ezekiel, a long time before Nicodemus, talked about the need for new hearts. The need for a new move of God. The need for God to give them life because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their disobedience. And then in just one chapter later, Ezekiel 37, we see the famous valley of dry bones where God moves and breathes new life into dead, dry bones. And Ezekiel describes it like wind, just like Jesus describes it in John chapter 3. We need new life. We need new hearts. We need God's spirit within us. As Jesus might say, We must be born again. And the good news is that God is all too willing to give people new life, to cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us from our errors, to cleanse us from our rebellion. God wants to do that. God wants people like you and wants people like me to be born again by the Holy Spirit, to find new life and new joy, and new obedience in him. So Jesus wraps up his conversation with Nicodemus, and he makes one more reference to the Old Testament that a Pharisee like Nicodemus ought to recognize, and it's found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. It's a little bit of a harsh-sounding story, at least to many of our ears. It's the story about when God's people rebelled in the wilderness, and so God sent serpents to punish them. And many of God's people were bitten by the serpents, and many of those people died. But when the people finally repent, Moses makes a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole. And everyone who looks to that serpent would be healed from their injuries, would be saved from death. And like he did in chapter 2, Jesus uses that story to look forward to his own death. And his own resurrection. He makes it clear that when people look at him. Lifted up on the cross. They will be healed. They will escape judgment. They will find life. Now you can't totally blame Nicodemus for walking away. Somewhat scratching his head. I mean this whole idea of being born again by the Holy Spirit. That's a big idea to wrap your mind around. And while it may be confusing in some ways, I think this passage can help us answer that question from the beginning of the sermon. The question is, what exactly does it mean to become a child of God? You might even say that when you become a Christian, what exactly happens to you? 
Well, I think John 3 gives us a couple of things to consider. Number one, a child of God is someone born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember when we read that Jesus knew what was in man, and that's why he didn't entrust himself to them. Well, what exactly is in man? Well, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, it's not exactly good. The answer there is sin and rebellion. And for a person guilty of sin and rebellion against God to become a child of God, they don't just need to be shown some incredible miracles or taught some good lessons or given a nice moral example. A person like that doesn't need to be taught some new doctrines to believe in their head or develop some new habits or just change a poor attitude. A person like that, a sinner, a rebel, needs to be born again, transformed, made new, brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought to life in a way that only God can accomplish, like those dry bones in the book of Ezekiel. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. Mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. But God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. God is interested in producing a new kind of people, reborn people, people who are made new, people who are transformed by his spirit. What that tells us is that working hard to be a better person, that's not what makes you a child of God. God's grace seen in the cross and resurrection of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit. That's what turns sinners and rebels into reborn children. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a child of God, but you are also reborn by the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation, not just some better, more moral, more polite version of the old one. You are made new. And then John 3 also tells us that A child of God is someone who looks to the cross. Jesus lifted up on that cross like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Children of God look to Jesus for healing and for life. We look to Christ for deliverance from punishment and death. Now, us sitting here this morning, we may not have been bitten by literal serpents like those in Numbers chapter 21. But in a sense, we're all snake-bitten. We're all fallen, like Adam and Eve before us. All guilty of sin. All guilty of rebellion. All touched by that deceiving serpent way back in the Garden of Eden. And yet, in looking to the cross, we don't just receive healing for some physical wound. We don't just receive a new yet temporary lease on life. We receive healing from the judgment that separated us from God 
And we receive eternal life, not temporary life. I recently read an article in the New York Times, and it was an interview uh, written by Nicholas Kristof interviewing Pastor Tim Keller in New York City. And the title of the article is, Am I a Christian? Pastor Tim Keller. Kristof writes this, Tim, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of themes that have been so integral to Christianity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the miracles, and so on. Christoph later asks, must the resurrection be taken literally? Did it actually happen? And again, in the whole interview, he's wanting to know, all right, am I still a Christian, Tim Keller, even if I don't believe in these things? Even if I just respect Jesus and like his message, am I still a Christian? Am I a child of God? Am I born again? Keller ultimately responds by saying this. I wouldn't draw any conclusion about an individual without talking to him or her at length. But in general, if you don't accept the resurrection or other foundational beliefs of Christianity, I'd say you are on the outside of the boundary. Now, the reason I share that interview is because I can't help but sense a little bit of Nicodemus in that interview. We have someone who respects Jesus, someone who likes Jesus, someone who is very highly regarded by his surrounding culture, and yet just doesn't seem to fully understand who Jesus really is. Just can't get his mind around the fact that Jesus is not just a good teacher, even one come from God. He's not just a good moral example. He's not just a good leader to follow. He's the word of God, the true light, the life, the very son of God. As John the Baptist would say, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People like Nicodemus. And the author of that New York Times article. And you and me. And every other fallen human being on this planet. We must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So we pray as followers of Jesus. That the Holy Spirit would continue to work in the hearts and minds. Of those who don't know Christ. That the Holy Spirit would continue to give new life to those dry bones in our world. And we pray that those dry bones would simply have ears to hear. I pray that we too would have ears to hear. That while we're initially born again, that the Holy Spirit is always and continually working in our hearts and working in our minds. That your transformation and my transformation as children of God, it's ongoing. We are still being changed, we are still being matured, and we are still being grown. Now, we're not done with Nicodemus yet. It's not too late for him to respond to Jesus, and we'll see him come back later in the Gospel of John. And in the same way, it's not too late for you either. The Holy Spirit is at work every single time Jesus' death and resurrection is proclaimed. The Holy Spirit is at work every single time Scripture is opened up. So I pray this morning that you would have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is telling you. If you're already a believer, 
If nothing else, I pray this passage would remind you of the grace that you've been shown. It would remind you that you are a child of God, not through your own works, not through your own great decision, but because the Holy Spirit worked in you and because of what Christ has done for you. And I also pray this passage would be a reminder to be who you are, that you are a new creation, not to be who you once were. And if you're not a follower of Christ, perhaps the Holy Spirit is urging you to believe in and receive Jesus this morning so that you can leave here knowing without the shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God, that you look forward to the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is at work right now. I pray that we would be open to what he is doing. I pray that we would be continually transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that those who don't know Christ, those who just think he's a good teacher, those who just think he's a nice moral example, we pray that they would be reborn as well. Let's pray. Father, a few weeks ago, many of us probably made New Year's resolutions about how we want to improve ourselves, how we want to change things, how we want to be better at this or better at that. All these efforts at simply making ourselves better. But as we read your word and as we see the state that we're in, the state of sin and rebellion, we learn that we need far, far more than just improvement. We don't just need to be better people. We don't just need to be more charitable people, more kind people, more honest people. We need to be new people. And the only person who can bring that about in our hearts and in our minds, it's not us, it's not any other human on this planet. It's the work of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us this morning that he'd work in our hearts, that he'd work in our minds, that those of us who are already believers would continue to look more and more like your son Jesus. And for those of us who are not believers, that they would receive Christ and believe in him this morning. Thank you for your word, that you're not content to just leave us in our sin and leave us in our rebellion, that you took the initiative and that you still take the initiative to reveal yourself to sinful people like us. Continue to give us new life. Continue to cleanse us. Continue to renew our hearts. I pray that you would be at work in that this morning, and we thank you that you are faithful in doing that. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, after reading a passage like this, I can't help but ask, have you been born again? And I don't ask this to spook you into thinking that you're not a Christian, if you already are. There are lots of preachers and churches and summer camps and conferences that ask this question constantly to the point of sowing unhealthy doubt in the minds of believers, to where they're constantly doubting or constantly fretting over whether or not they're really, truly saved. And that's not what I'm trying to do here this morning. However, it's possible that you're sitting here right now, fundamentally having misunderstood 
what it means to be a child of God in the first place. You might be sitting here, and for a long time you've assumed that you're a child of God because you were born into a Christian family, or because you married into a Christian family. You've assumed that you were a child of God because you're impressed by the miracles of Jesus, or respect the teachings of Jesus, or think he's a nice moral example for your kids. You've assumed you're a child of God because you try to be honest, and you try to be compassionate, and you try to be charitable to other people. And yet Jesus tells us that we must be born again. We must be made new. We must be transformed. And that is a work that you can't do. No self-improvement, no trying to be better, no attempts at reforming your character are going to make you have new life in Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So if you have questions about that, if you have any doubt about that, talk to our elders. They'll be standing at the sides of the room at the end of our service. They are there to answer your questions, there to pray with you, there to help you work this out, maybe even there to reassure you if you're going through a dry spell in your own walk with Christ at this moment. But again, we hope you'll take advantage of that time, and we hope that you will leave here confident that you are a child of God, that you have been born again. As we prepare to enter our time of communion and our time of offering, we're going to sing one more song. And then we'll finish out our service and let you go on about your Sunday.